trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. All right, we are off and running not only on a Monday, but we are off and running for the first day of February. Hey, congratulations. You made it through that 10-year period, which will come to be known in the history books as January of 2021. Now, it only seemed like 10 years, but man, it really did, though, right? There are times when things go quickly, and there are times when they slow down. And it's it's been my experience that the times where, where it seems like time is flowing like molasses in January, that's when things are not going so great. Now, I'm not here to depress you, so let me let me stop stating the obvious here. Hey, something's kind of wrong. You know, here's the funny thing, and I, I'm gonna gonna paraphrase a, a a meme that I have seen circulating, and it, it says something to this effect: even if you're not a conspiracy theorist, something deep in your soul is probably crying out to you: this isn't right. As you look around at everything that's going on. Now, this uh, past weekend, I had a chance to travel, go visit with some family and and friends, and um, I, I talked to people from a number of different ideological points of view. So it wasn't like, yeah, I went and met with all my conservative friends or all my progressive friends. I just met with a lot of people from very, very uh, differing points of view. And if there was a common theme that every one of them expressed, it was, holy cow, what's coming next? I mean, they, they can see that uh, there is a great deal of instability right now in a lot of the institutions which uh, which we have taken for granted, you know, would be rock solid and always uh, responsive and, and more importantly, would be serving us and our interests. Not so. I mean, we, we learned in the last week that uh, there's a lot of our life or a lot of parts of our lives that uh, we have grown up believing, yeah, this is operating in our interest or this is serving us or this is, they're looking out for us, you know only to find out uh, it's, it's just not the case. And I know there were people asking themselves, okay, how in what seems like a fairly short amount of time, I'm talking 20 years or less, did the world turn into opposite world? Think about what's common sense, just about anything. And today you hear and read that the opposite is true. I mean, if, if most people, you show them a cat today and you tell them, that is a dog, especially if you do it with, you know, kind of a, a social justice slant. Instead of saying, no, that's a cat, most people say, oh, really? Well, I never knew. <laughs> it's because I guess everybody's, they're, they're either happy to be woke because they're, that signals, look, what a great person I am. I, too, am woke. Yes, that is a dog, even though it's purring. That's, that's a dog, definitely. Or... They're afraid not to toe the line because they worry that uh, they're, they're going to, you know, be canceled or punished or otherwise ostracized for not getting with the wokeness. So let me just assure you that uh, this is not something that uh, I, I don't I don't care if you're woke or not, but I had this commitment to truth. And that's not just truth that supports, you know, what I already believe, but but truth. 
I mean, you think about how global warming and race relations or racism, gay marriage, gun control, trans rights, and all these things suddenly become super important 24-7 priorities in the media. Someone other than you and me is, is making the decision that this is where our focus needs to be or this is what we want the media to focus on. And I've heard it explained like this, and I, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but uh, looking at how things have shaken out here in the last month or so, it is very clear that there is an oligarchic elite that has an immense amount of power, some of them in government, many of them not. And this this elite thinks of things, and the, the crisis that is associated with it uh, is distributed to politicians. The politicians then give positions to media. The media whips the low-information public into a frenzy. The public demands solutions to this crisis because, after all, it's scaring them to death. And then the government exerts control, positions itself to look like, oh, well, look at us. We're, we're working to solve this problem for you. And that's how these kind of things become super important things, super important priorities. And, and the crazy thing about it is, you wonder, why don't more people question? Why don't they think about what's going on here? And the only thing I can tell you is, uh, well, in, in the one case, people are, um, they're, they're comfortable. And so seeking after truth and freedom become fairly low priorities. And, you know, I... There, people right now are in that stage where they just they, they would rather hear comfortable lies instead of um, painful knowledge or truth or freedom. That's where we are today. And I guess this is one of the reasons why uh, I, I proudly embrace the slogan, revel in wrong think. Because the things that matter most to me, things like knowledge, truth, and freedom, they require effort. They require effort to attain, they require effort to maintain, and sometimes they require effort to defend. So, I'm okay with incurring some pain, I'm, inca- I'm okay with living outside the comfort zone. I hope you are too, because we're going to take a little journey today and explore some of these ideas. And there's no requirement here that you have to agree with me, there's just, uh, I'm going to put these things forth for your consideration so that you can, can make up your own mind. One of the things that, as I talk with more and more people about what's going on around us, I'm, I'm sad for those who are, are still very invested in the idea of, hey, you know, if we, can just, if we can just vote smarter, if we can just come back and get the right people in office, and if we can just back this person or back this party and shore up this, you know, we're going to fix it all. And this is only my opinion, so, you know, it's, it's worth exactly what you paid for it, but... I think that ship already sailed. I don't think we are in a point where we can fix what's going on politically. And the reason for this is because I really think right now we're getting the world's biggest object lesson in how politics has a tendency to taint anything that it touches. So in my mind, the chance of fixing those things that divide us by doubling down on a political solution, I think that chance is somewhere between slim and fat that we're going to you know, succeed. And the more I look at it, the more I'm coming to the conclusion that the only way to win, if there is such a thing as winning in a situation like this, is not to play the game. I think we are at the point where um, 
the system itself is so invested in perpetuating and grabbing all the power that it can. By the, I mean, look at look at the actions of the politicians right now in Washington D.C. They're building permanent fencing around. They're they're creating a garrison state in Washington D.C. Does that speak confidence to you? And in, in uh, look how sound our system is. Look how sound our ideas are. We don't need fences and you know combat-ready soldiers standing guard to make sure that our ideas are, you know, embraced by people or that they're protected. But that's where we are, and that's what you see happening. Look at all the executive orders. Look at the legislation that's being passed. I mean, there's, there is a sense that, hey, nothing is going to stop us now. And while I, I admire their, you know, their uh, chutzpah as they, as they move forward, you know, we're, we've got this, we've got this. I happen to know that uh, despite their their inflated sense of self-importance, the politicians in D.C., and I mean of all parties, they're not really in charge. They don't run the universe. They think they do. They've mistaken their credentials, as Stephen King would say, for something proclaiming them grand poobahs of all that is. But they're not. And most importantly... They really don't have the control of you and me that, that they would like to think that they have. And so here's what I'm going to be focusing on in, in this hour of the show. We're going to start with, uh, with uh, an essay from Joaquin Book about how the only way to win is not to play their game. And you're going to hear me come back to this, and, and I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but I, I'm talking about instead of, instead of putting your finite moral energy and resources to work trying to shore up a political system that will gladly turn around and screw you every opportunity that it gets, maybe it's time to start focusing on uh, building whatever comes next. And I know that seems like a daunting task, and, and if you're like me, the first thought that pops into your head is, but I don't know enough. I mean, I'm not that kind of a leader. I'm not that kind of a visionary. I'm not that kind of uh, person with understanding to, to know. How would, you, how would you do that? How do you build what comes next? Well, I think the first thing starts with you, you claim your own consent. You claim your autonomy. And by making yourself an unplayable piece on that big chessboard... You chart a different direction, and I'm, I'm of the opinion, if you do it with proper principles and truth, others will notice, and others will begin to act likewise. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, you can check out every article that I mention in this hour. It will be included in the show notes published at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for February 1st, 2021. I want to start with an essay from Joaquin Book. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website, AIER.org. If you haven't subscribed to their daily emails, do it. You will find so much good, and, and I mean good, well-thought-out scholarly articles that will help you have a better understanding of the world. Joaquin Book, in this case, talks about how the only way to win is not to play. And he says, when the melting pot has stopped melting and started stirring, 
you need to try something else. He says, America was always the land of opportunity where working hard meant getting ahead and where doing well was not just allowed but encouraged. Where you could mind your own business and where your right to believe the craziest of things was routinely accepted and then overlooked in service of more worldly things. From Disneyland to massive film festivals to setting up crazy cities in the desert, the American way was to cherish diversity and independence, the ability, right even, for everyone to do their thing. Or so it told itself. But he says, now, however, something seems broken. And he says, I'm certainly not the first to point that out. Many clashes at dinner tables and arguments in the living room have exposed the rifts between people over politics, over the ruling of the country, over health care and who ought to pay for it, over how the pandemic changed people's lives and how we ought to behave in this strange new world. He says the particular American fight over masks, you know, wearing them or not, do they work or not, became an illustrating symbol that signalized that signaled righteousness or de- de- or deviance rather loyalty to the establishment and others well-being or a hatred for the same he says the personal became incredibly political in an age just slowly adjusting to how megaphone-esque social media landscapes alter our behavior perception and understanding of our fellow human beings no personal stone seemed unturned the political parties have become noticeably more hostile towards as well as moving ideologically away from each other. Somewhere between one-sixth and one-third of Republicans and Democrats alike report they would be upset if their child married someone from the opposite party. Now, Joaquin Book says perhaps there was always some resentment for political opponents, but it seems on display and on a magnitude not previously seen. The pandemic, both through its invasive political policies and behavior among people, is only the tip of this collapsing iceberg where everyone's business is everyone else's to meddle with. Where your ideological or political persuasion is a moral failure subjecting you to an endless amount of scorn, hatred, or even violence. He says, we see it in our families where everyone now has political rifts. We see it in our dating life where sorting according to partisanship is increasingly a thing. We most certainly see it among friends that can no longer put politics aside and even break friendships because you voted for the wrong ruler or wore or didn't wear the wrong piece of cloth on your face. In the workplace, you better sign off on the correct values or see your employment at risk. Increasingly, like uh, media commentators left and right have sputtered for years, Americans live in isolated informational bubbles. They literally don't see the same reality. They misinterpret facts presented to them according to partisan convictions. A long-standing result in psychology is that intelligence does not help to offset this. The smarter one, the smarter one is the clever ways one finds to spin factual results and arguments in buttressing one's all one's own already established opinions. Now, British journalist Douglas Murray in The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity reflects a lot on this inability to value discourse and disagreement. Reflecting on the widening chasms in British and American political life, he writes that to live together, quote, we have to find some way to get along together. It is the only option we have because otherwise, if we've come to the conclusion that talking and listening respectfully are futile, the only tool left for us is violence, end quote. By the way, this echoes a warning that one of my favorite columnists, Charlie Reese, wrote many, many years ago. And this was on the tail, or the tail end of uh, the violence in the Balkans, in the former Yugoslavia. 
And Charlie Reese warned that, you know, you've got to be careful. When you get to the point where people simply cannot talk to each other, we're beyond talking. He said, that's where balkanization occurs. That's where, you know, we really have no choice, but it's us or them, and we need to go wipe them out so that we can live peacefully. I know. That's stuff that we always were concerned. That's, that's happening somewhere else. That's in some backwards, blood-soaked corner of the world that has nothing to do with us. And yet it turns out human nature is, uh, well, the same human nature they were struggling with, we're struggling with as well. That should be a cautionary realization. Joaquin Book says, for years before the January storming of the U.S. Capitol, Douglas Murray and many others with him warned about the dangers of politicizing life and staking moral and social triumph on whoever sits in the White House or who runs Westminster. And while the protests and the event itself was unexpected, nobody really is surprised that it happened. That's what political life has come to. Under a large and powerful government, he says, I might add, it's easy to file the storming under crazy right-wingers or boiling fascist tendencies of all Republicans, but he says that's a mistake. Had the November election gone differently, very few of the societal wounds that have opened during the 2010s would have closed. Nothing would have been better and a number of things probably worse. Listen to this point. He says, but it was Trump supporters, allegedly, who stormed the Capitol and put our grand democracy at risk, you might say. Yes, but he says, had the election gone only slightly different and the shoe been on the other foot, we would most likely have seen Democratic supporters storming the Capitol, preventing what they saw as an unlawful power grab. How can he say something like that, you might be asking? Well, do you remember when uh, Justice Kavanaugh was being confirmed? Yes, the storming was a little more orderly, <laughs> but it was storming nonetheless of the Supreme Court. Look at what happened last summer. This is just as an aside. Look at it, Look at the rioting. Look at the destruction that took place across America. The promise was there would be much more of that if Trump was elected to a second term. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll confess, and I think I admitted as much here on, on this program, one of my big concerns was that Donald Trump would win, or, or barring you know, the results uh, you know, being overturned, would become you know, president for another term, and that that would unleash the insane fury of these rioters on the left. I mean, they told us what they would do. They, they showed us what they would do. It's not a matter of, oh, well, you know, that was just talk. No, we saw the actions. We saw the ashes. By the way, Joaquin Book says, you know, if you, if, if you don't believe, you would have seen Democratic supporters storming the Capitol. He says, according to a number of surveys done by political scientists, Nathan Calmo and Liliana Mason, well before the November election, a higher proportion of left-wing voters, 18%, than right-wing voters, only 14%, said that violence was justified in case of an unfavorable outcome in the presidential election of 2020. Even more scary than a fringe for whom violence isn't a barrier is that much larger shares of partisan crowds view their opponents as downright evil. So everybody's sitting on their moral high horse and oh, about, uh, you know, well, those people who stormed the Capitol. You know darn well, if you're being honest with yourself, that your side would have done all that and more had the shoe been on the other foot. So spare us the dramatics and, and let's see what we can do to solve this problem. Joaquin Book says, considering how much moral fire was received by everyone even remotely connected to the right for the protests in early January, that, force, that forces us to scale back our moral condemnation. 
In an alternate universe where Trump had won, he says, my guess is that we'd be in exactly the same situation with a uniquely disliked president and an unruly population and society at odds with itself and a violent attack on some public institution attempting to reverse the result. Now, I got to take a break here, but when we come back, he has a solution. And I think this is a workable solution in the sense that it doesn't depend on gaining consensus or getting all the politicians on one page or even, you know, trying to win the masses over. It starts with something that's within your grasp and my grasp. And it's something that we can put to work right away. And I'm sorry to do the cliffhanger, but hang on. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, when you visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, please pay close attention to the sponsor links at the bottom of each show notes. I want you to uh, take note of who is sponsoring this program. Take the time to thank them. If you need their business, you need their product, you need their service, please feel free to do business with them. Let them know that their message is reaching your ears via this platform. And by the way, a special tip of the hat, too, to those of you who have signed on as patrons of this program. I love you, and I appreciate your support, and, and every little bit helps me to focus like a laser beam on what I am doing right here. So I'm sharing this article from Joaquin Book from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he talks about how if, if we're really honest with ourselves, you know, the concern over the radicalism and the anger and, oh, what happened to the Capitol on January 6th? He says, if we're really thinking about this honestly, and if the shoe were on the other foot, if Donald Trump had pulled out a win in this election and was, was beginning his second term as president, nothing would be different other than the fact it would be the left wing that would have been storming the Capitol and it would have been them, you know, continuing to, uh, to protest against what they saw as an illegitimate election. I'm pretty sure they would be saying things like stop the steal and that kind of stuff too, but that's just a hunch. His point is this. At some point of societal schism, there is no way back. Now, he says, perhaps we're not there yet. Perhaps we can still mend the wounds of the last few decades. He says, I keep wondering that maybe, just maybe, some part of the extreme right-wing segregationist claims have merit. He says, if it's unthinkable for you to live alongside someone of the wrong class, sex, religion, race, or political persuasion, perhaps you shouldn't. Perhaps then dividing, separating, or even seceding is the only solution. Ignoring one another is a peaceful way of coexisting. Not interacting is a viable solution unless we're forced to do so, do so rather through a one-size-fits-all political process. Playing the political game makes it worse. And the collapse of personal grand narratives have let politics substitute for every other desire we have. He says we could decentralize political power, have people self-select into what sort of governance and or people they wish to live with, and he says we can peacefully separate instead of violently combat one another. And after the year we've had, Trump, Trump, anger, pandemic, land, lockdown, BLM, election coup, does anyone still think that living apart from one another is such a bad idea? Now, some people would say, that's giving up. But I'd have to ask, how? In what way 
is, is that giving up? See, I tend to view this through the lens of freedom of association. And if you are not free to either associate with or not associate with people that uh, you, you don't have things in common with, you're really not free. This is kind of what, uh, this is what we're seeing happen on a very grand scale. It's not enough. If, if somebody wants to go their way, I'm not one to sit there and say, no, 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 you come back here and you bend the knee and you say that what I think is true. But there are people like that. And unfortunately, there are quite a few of them in power right now. So more and more, I'm becoming a believer in the power of secession. And I mean at the personal level. There's a great article, by the way, on townhall.com. This is from Jeff Croer. A different type of secession is already happening in the U.S. He says, lately there's been so much frustration with the last election and the direction of our country that some Trump supporters have been talking about secession. Many conservatives and libertarians are asking if it makes sense for certain states to leave the Union the way South Carolina left in 1860 after the election of Abraham Lincoln as President of the United States. And he says whether it makes sense or not, we can be assured that it will not happen. Although the South Carolina state legislature voted in November of 1860 to initiate the process of secession, in his opinion, no state legislator would do that today. That's because most modern state legislators, even conservative ones, legislatures rather, even conservative ones, don't have many members who are angry enough at the federal government to support seceding from it. Yeah, they're also pretty attached to that federal teat because they want that money. But he says, never forget that many individual state legislators are professional politicians. They may disagree with some of the policies that flow from Washington, D.C., but they're not angry enough to vote for secession, and that's what's required to, su- to secede, rather. Anger. While an official secession will not happen, he says there will be a different type. In fact, it's already started in our country. Instead of state legislatures dominated by urban dwellers voting for secession, Americans who live in rural and some suburban areas are executing a secession of their own. They're disassociating themselves from the lifestyles, cultural mores, laws, and self-inflicted wounds exhibited in our large cities. Of course, rural Americans are already living in areas removed from large cities, but geography is only one of the many differences. An even more striking distinction involves political ideology and attitudes on an array of issues like criminal justice. Citizens living outside ultra-progressive urban areas do not accept what's going on in large cities. Surely the thinking is, I'm not one of them. They're different from me. We do not agree on basic things like what laws should govern human conduct. He says this mental disassociation did not exist in previous times of crisis in our country. There was much more national unity in December of 1941 or even September of 2001. At that time, rural Americans and city dwellers still had many shared values and followed the same laws. Clearly, the similarity in culture and politics between rural and urban Americans is dying, and the pace of its death march is quickening. By the way, he says this same type of disassociation is also felt by many Americans living in suburban areas. They recognize their way of life is incompatible with that often exhibited in large cities. This results in suburban dwellers venturing into cities less often. Once there, they feel unsafe and unwelcome. According to the FBI, crime rates in our urban areas are significantly higher than in suburban and rural areas. More crime is not the only difference Americans notice in large cities. There are also different laws regarding decency, civility, and cleanliness. 
Unfortunately, manners and traditional customs are rarely, if ever, practiced. Now, I like the example that he gives. He says, many horrific things can happen to you in a large city without warning. You can be struck from behind in a knockout attack. You ever seen the knockout game? Google it. Or duck, duck, go it, if you don't like Google. (laughs) Or you could be wounded by a stray bullet. You could be surrounded by violent demonstrators who scream at you and call you evil because of your wealth, race, religious views, or political beliefs. Or just the fact that you're not chanting in unison with them. He says, this is not a place that feels comfortable or feels like home. Over the past few decades, millions of Americans who support traditional American values and even some who value safety have already left our large cities. They are disgusted with the political corruption, high taxes, racial politics, homelessness, and, over the past year, the excessive COVID-19 lockdown orders. People leaving are also those who value their Second Amendment rights. They do not want to be charged with a crime if they have to defend their home. I mean, who can forget what happened to Mark and Patricia McCloskey in St. Louis? Remember this? June 28th, their neighborhood was overrun by protesters and a mob was descending on their home. Well, the couple stepped out and waved firearms in front of their home to encourage the protesters to leave. No gun was fired at any of the the trespassers. And incredibly, Mr. and Mrs. McCloskey were charged with the unlawful use of a weapon, even though they feared for their lives. If convicted, they could face up to four years in prison and a fine of $10,000. And as this trend continues in cities like St. Louis, Detroit, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Washington, D.C., and New York City decline even more, these areas will simultaneously become more similar. They already have much in common politically. Future cooperation will likely continue on issues like drug legalization, the treatment of homelessness, gun control, permissive law enforcement, and providing sanctuary and support for illegal aliens. With so much commonality, he says, the cities will forge even closer bonds in the days ahead. With unworkable policies and massive bureaucracies, these cities will need greater and greater subsidies from the productive, tax-paying citizens living in rural and suburban America. Urban areas have been failing financially for many years, but as the policies become more progressive, those costs are escalating even higher. In large cities, politicians spend vast sums of money on enormous municipal government systems, which include inefficient departments featuring payrolls that are too large and too expensive. Other characteristics include broken infrastructure, rampant homelessness, and an overly generous uh, municipal pension system. Now, Jeff Crowier says, how much longer will productive taxpayers living in rural and suburban communities agree to subsidize large cities? Sooner or later, these citizens will say, enough is enough, we want out. They want the urban centers to form their own United Cities of America with their own laws and lifestyles simultaneously Americans living in non-urban areas will want to forge closer bonds of their own as similarities are recognized even more. So his point is, the secession of 1860 will not happen again, but a different kind is already taking place. Again, this is Jeff Crowair. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. By the way, just just to, to drive this home, I noticed that uh, as I left the uh, highly populated area of the Wasatch Front in Utah and traveled to rural Idaho, to uh, meet up with family. We actually went out for for lunch. And I sat in a restaurant and had a delightful lunch and there was not a mask in sight. Not on the employees, not on the customers. Contrast that with, uh, you know, the uh, more urban environment. They're everywhere. Everybody is masked up. There's a conclusion we could draw from that. I'm not sure what it is. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Moving into our final segment for this hour. I don't know if you have paid close attention to this, but uh, it's been fascinating as well as just a little bit disturbing to watch the progression of woke ideology become entrenched in corporate America. I mean, I, I remember this years ago. Over, over certain social justice issues where it was like, wow, you know, Levi Strauss is really on the anti-gun bandwagon. And, and so, you know, I mean, I, I've talked to people who are like, well, I, I make it a point never to buy from anyone who supports a political view that I don't agree with. If you were to adopt that today, especially if you fall to more of the uh, liberty-oriented side of the political spectrum, man, you're going to be living in one set of homespun clothing in a cave because so much of corporate America is so woke these days. I mean, I just saw the Burger King commercial uh, with concern about greenhouse gases. Yes, they, there's some parody there, but when Burger King is assuring me, yes, they too are concerned about greenhouse gases, that's not what I'm thinking about when I go to uh, buy a, uh, you know, a Whopper. In fact, my eyes start to roll every time a company rolls out you know, another, another inclusive cracker ad. You know, that, that shows, you know, transgenders enjoy Ritz crackers or whatever it may be. It's not that I have anything against anybody. It's just I, I kind of get the feeling that someone is, is uh, lecturing me. And there's a terrific article from Kimberly Josephson on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, Why Corporations Should Cater to Consumers, Not Causes. She says it's not uncommon to hear in any business course that consumers vote with their dollars and sales signal approval. However, she says this simple philosophy seems less applicable today, and maybe it may be the case that the dollar has slowly lost its potency as a primary mechanism for messaging of what consumers do and do not want. For instance, the introduction of apple slices and yogurt packs in McDonald's Happy Meals wasn't due to a drop in sales or lost interest in French fries. It was due to external pressures and increased scrutiny from legislators regarding marketing of unhealthy food choices to children. And McDonald's Apple adoption has dramatically impacted the Apple consumption rates within the U.S. Now, Kimberly Josephson says marketing healthier options is one thing, but marketing morality, that's another. One of McDonald's longtime rivals, Burger King, has engaged in advocacy campaigning with, with some success, especially in regards to anti-bullying, and with some ridicule in regards to greenhouse gas emissions. And although the fast food sector has a broad target market, and the abhorrence to bullying is widespread, it's pretty safe to say methane gas isn't at the forefront of their consumers' minds when ordering a burger. Firms leveraging situations and social issues is not new, but showcasing their moral authority despite a disinterested uh, consumer base, rather, is. Even when attempting anonymity, the presence of a brand means that a message is never truly altruistic. And this was most notably demonstrated by Frito-Lay's anti-commercial commercial during the peak of the COVID-19 cases in April 2020. A more recent attempt to showcase a company's concern for society's well-being is Coca-Cola's hashtag Open to Better campaign in the UK, which encourages consumers to embrace change and put their resolutions for a better world on public display. 
But she says, do consumers really want self-reflection whenever they sip soda? And let's be real, this is a marketing ploy since the design is clearly created for brand engagement. Corporate social responsibility, CSR, has evolved beyond business interest in sustainability to various levels of accountability and virtuous ventures and forms of corporate social justice, CSJ, are on the rise. Even algorithms are being redefined to ensure fairness in our search for products and information. And social action is being viewed as appropriate and in some cases warranted for the business world. Now, there is danger, however, in desiring products that not only suit personal wants, but also social needs, since the impact is not always measurable nor effective. Businesses achieve success by focusing on areas of specialization, and so it may be best for firms to stick to what they do best and not enter realms in which they have no prior experience or even when they have the best of intentions. Kimberly Josephson says rational consumers seeking value rather than virtue must work harder to understand the corporate social responsibility bandwagon companies are jumping on and spot those who are abusing or misusing the conscious consumer trend. And here she has four key questions consumers should ask ask themselves about all CSR campaigns, corporate social responsibility. Number one, what's in it for the corporation? That's not to suggest that corporations are inherently up to no good. It's just it's important to understand a corporation's motivations for embarking on a CSR campaign and how that campaign might also bolster the corporation's bottom line. For instance, it was discovered in India that corporate promoters were distributing CSR donations to their own non-governmental organizations in order for the money to make its way back into their own pockets. That's pretty self-serving. Second question, is there potential for diverting attention or misrepresentation? She points out how British Petroleum topped Fortune 500 or Fortune magazine, rather, their annual corporate accountability rating for CSR in 2004, 2005 and 2007. They were in second place in 2006. And the social initiatives that assured the accolades, such as BP's Turtle Sanctuary, seemed to serve as a distraction to the negligence regarding the production practices leading up to the 2010 oil spill and its aftermath. Who can forget the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal in 2015, whereas just a year prior, the company was given a claim for its sustainable initiatives. Number three, should issues be branded and how does it position others in the industry? Kimberly Josephson says an odd side effect of social labeling or virtue signaling is that it almost simultaneously positions all those products not bearing such badges or launching advocacy campaigns as being devoid of social consciousness, which is not likely the case. Take, for example, the recent Vogue piece claiming to be pushing gender norms for the fashion industry. Are brands that cater to genders then in the wrong? Should Lane Bryant and Men's Warehouse begin offering androgynous attire or... Is Vogue pushing a moot point since gender and fashion don't have to conflict and people can simply decide for themselves what they want to wear and not make a fuss over it? Men dressing in gowns is not new and fashion should be a personal preference, not a platform for self-promotion. Fourth and finally, she says, is there potential for doing more harm than good? A 2011 study by Germany's University of Hohenheim discovered that some fair trade certified coffee farmers actually became worse off in comparison to conventional producers due to being limited by certification for investing in improvements or taking advantage of expansion opportunities. It was found that in comparison to one third of their conventional counterparts, 45% of farmers with fair trade certification had per capita incomes below the extreme poverty line. 
The primary reason cited as to why the non-certified producers were better off was due to having greater productivity yields given their ability to properly manage their land as well as expand their land ownership as needed. Basically, the standards imposed for fair trade certification inhibited growth prospects. Since to be certified, a farm must be classified as small and therefore must remain as such. She says it seems that the crowded field of CSR campaigns, in order for it to remain navigable, consumers must demand transparency or simply require businesses to remain in their own court of affairs. Those who side with economist Milton Friedman's doctrine claim that the sole responsibility of a business is business to generate profits and further growth prospects. In the Nobel laureate's own words, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. And she says, in this sense, businesses are doing right by society by creating jobs, engaging in production, contributing to economic advancement, while providing value to those wanting to buy. It's no secret that consumption can bring pleasure, And those obsessed with Target can attest to this fact. Even the simple act of grocery shopping has been known to bring joy. She says, according to Ramat Sethi, author and founder of a website, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, and quoted in Business Insider, quote, a business idea is simply a skill or knowledge that solves a person's problem and that they want to pay you money for, end quote. Needs and wants within a marketplace prompt entrepreneurial mindsets, which in turn can improve a society's well-being by increasing the standard of living or directly by targeting the specific needs for niche audiences. And she says that's wonderful in and of itself. Take, for example, the ability of those with Parkinson's to now eat with confidence thanks to liftware or a product like LifeStraw that can be used by those who love to camp and hike or those across the globe truly struggling for access to clean water. Each is making the world a better place, not through some grand stated mission of social responsibility, but by actually serving consumers. Businesses who are ethical, responsible, and generate value should be rewarded with profits for their production purposes alone. And consumers expecting more? may discover that enticing business to partake in societal welfare beyond their scope has potential to make matters worse, often while pulling the wool over our eyes. I'll have a link to this marvelous article in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.